You are listening to Billionaires in Boxes, the number one podcast publicist for businesses globally. Hello and welcome to this edition of Billionaires in Boxes with me, your host, Phil Paluccia. Now listen, if you are somebody who dreams of taking your company public, if this is on the cards for you, this is going to be an interview that you're going to want to pay attention to. A good friend and partner of mine, Peter Goldstein, is here from Exchange Listing. Okay, Exchange Listing, are for me, they are the company that you need to go to to understand not only how you're going to attract the funding to make this happen, but have that strategic roadmap in place that's going to get you trading on NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, wherever that focus is for you. So this is a must listen. Welcome to the show, Peter. Phil, thanks so much for the introduction. Excited to be here with you today. It's a real pleasure to have you. So, for our, I mean, I've given you a bit of an introduction there, but for our audience who haven't come across you before, do you want to kind of give us a 30, second, 30 to 60 second sort of overview of, of who you are and what you do? Absolutely. I'll try to keep it short here. Uh, you know, I'm 58, so I've had a very varied career as an entrepreneur. Uh, I started Phil in my early 20s, my first real company. Actually, um, on my 24th birthday, I went down to uh, City Hall in New York City on Center Street and got my first official business license. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I really have been an entrepreneur since I was, you know, a young man. But that was a company I built in New York City in the specialty food business from scratch and had my first exit at 30. So Mm -hmm. I got the first, you know, kind of sense of being a founder and a principal and driving that company to create an exit strategy and liquidity event for myself and since then, uh, so that's now uh, quite some time ago, close to 28 years ago, uh, I've been working in a, a multitude of ways with the entrepreneurial markets as well as the capital markets. So the focus is really early stage emerging growth companies. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to create my own investment bank as a boutique, which I started from scratch. I've since sold it. It's still active on Wall Street. Uh, And now I'm at a stage in my life where I've created a platform called Exchange Listing, which is really designed to work with entrepreneurs from around the world that want to create a public event and liquidity event on a senior exchange such as NASDAQ and and NYSE, as you mentioned. And we're very unique in what we do. Uh, We love working with entrepreneurs that have the goal of listing and then facilitating that uh, as a very unique kind of hands-on structure on working with them in every aspect of what's required to be not just reaching the goal, but to be a sustainable public company. Mm, I love that. I do. I, I want to take it back a step if we may, because there was a lot of stuff in there that I think is really juicy that we should really dive into. Um, I mean, not least of all, just what, how do you, how do you do a throwaway line like that, Peter? You know, I started my own investment bank and um, <laughs> I mean, that, that, for mere mortals, that's a, that's an incredible thing to hear. So I, I'm curious to take it right back, actually, if I may. So that first company, when you had your, your exit at 30, did you have somebody there doing what you do right now for you? Or did you kind of have to go through all of these learnings and pain points yourself? Yeah, it's a great question, Phil. I wish I had somebody like me. Uh, I think that's why I enjoy what I'm doing now so much, because I get to bring all of the the lessons, uh, the hardships, the wins, the losses, the failures that I, I've learned at that particular instance. I didn't have any real guidance when I started my company. Uh, I did it all from scratch. I learned it all the hard way. 
and and uh, took those experiences, obviously, and now have rolled those forward. When I did the exit, uh, I didn't have any guidance. I didn't have the proper lawyer. I didn't have somebody who had experience in mergers and acquisitions. Uh, I didn't have somebody who really was uh, there from a tax perspective, from you know a business acumen perspective. And so that's one of the things that now with all this experience that I get to bring, uh, you know, to what I'm doing, uh, that's fairly unique because there are other people that have that knowledge. But when you learn things as an entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurs tend to be very kind of do it yourself guys, mm-hmm. uh, and gals. Uh, and, and so inside of that, I was young, I was in my twenties. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, learned, learned more lessons. Like even though I have my master's degree in business, that was my first master's degree, uh, you know, at a different level than I, what I would ever learn in a, in a classroom anywhere. Yeah, I get that. My uh, when I graduated, my uh, my favorite lecturer, who actually headed up the department, came up to me, and uh, he he and I have been very close the whole way through my studies. And, and he was ex industry, and I and I loved him for it. Um, he was not an academic. He had started being an academic because he was tired of being on construction sites. And uh, he came to me and said, now you've got your qualification. This is where you get to start learning how to do the job. (laughs) Um, And I remember thinking, like, he's so right. Like, there's textbook and then there's what actually happens in the industry. Um, I'm curious then. So looking back with, 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 you know, hindsight is 2020, isn't it? 2020 vision. But do you feel like you missed out on some opportunities? Do you think like there were, did you, did you lose out of money? Did you lose out on the way that you kind of did that going through that process yourself, not having the guidance? What I'm trying to establish here is what, what do you think would have been different if you'd have had, let's say somebody like you, um, providing you that mentorship and support during that exit strategy? Yeah, I definitely missed out. I left, I left a lot of money on the table. Uh, and, and, you know, that's part of the lesson and, and learned and, and, and really didn't have the knowledge, not only on the transactional part of the exit, but then post exit and how to maintain uh, a piece of a revenue stream or return on investment that I'd worked so hard to create. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that's slightly different than what I do now. But I think in anything we do in life, Phil, especially as entrepreneurs who tend to carve new territory uh, to be somewhat pioneers or in their own way, in their own unique, you know, either business or or in their goals and accomplishments, uh, you know, you really get to learn. Uh, and then the smart way, of course, to do it then is to leverage others that have knowledge and experience. And I think that there's a lot that is left on the table. You know, there People that are, are older and more experienced can provide wisdom in a lot of ways, not just mm-hmm. in business, but in life. And so that's certainly, I think that is something you experience and learn over time uh, as you grow a little bit older and maybe mature a little bit. No, I, I couldn't agree more with, with everything you've just said there. And, and uh, as our listeners will know, I mean, there's, there's two things that resonate really strongly with me there. Number one is that I'm a big believer in business being a team sport. So, you know, you should focus on the bit that you're best at and surround yourself with other people who are equally as good at their bit rather than trying to reinvent the wheel and learn how to be good at every aspect of business. I don't, I don't think that's that's a way a lot of entrepreneurs start out, but I think we pretty soon realize that, no, no, I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm going to focus on the bit that I'm best at and partner and, and surround myself with people who can take me to that next level. But but even the name of our show, I mean, Billionaires in Boxes, um, I, I, I jokingly use the word billionaires, but I mean, I have to be honest, we have some billionaire mentors. I personally have some billionaire mentors who I learned so much from, not just about money, not just about business, but about life. You know, these are people who are 30, 40, 50 years my senior and being able to kind of 
hear lessons from them and, and have them say, you know, that thing of, you know, sacrifice your family to try and get the business where it needs to be because later down the line, it will come good. That's nonsense. You have to lay your stall out straight away and get that balance right. Otherwise, you find yourself successful and divorced. Um, and, you know, learning things like that is it was a real eye opener for me. So I, I completely agree with you. It's surrounding yourself with people who've been there, done that, you know, walked the path and can share both business lessons and life lessons with you. Agreed. And and one of the ways I look at that, Phil, is like if you take business and life and, and even if you just take business by itself and you look at that as if it was a, a pie. Well, you know, our highest and best purpose may be one slice or one sliver of that piece of pie, maybe 25 percent of it. So then the other 75 percent, you should be surrounding yourself with people that have their highest and best purpose and their mm -hmm. contribution you know, to your success. And the success will be, you know, tenfold to what it would be if you try to, you know, engulf the entire pie and do it yourself. And those are lessons learned, right? Absolutely. And, and, and you know, I've been the guy who made myself ill trying to do it that way, um, you know, working ridiculously long hours. I mean, I, I remember uh, putting myself under a tremendous amount of stress and I uh, felt this pain in my stomach one day. And I said to my wife, I'm going to have to go sleep this off. I'm in a lot of pain and woke up a couple of hours later with a, with a raging fever. I thought, I'm going to have to go to the doctors, and I never go to the doctors. I'm one of these guys who, if my arm's hanging off, I'll go, well, I've got another one. Um, so I went to the doctors, and I said, something's wrong. And they did some tests and established that my appendix had started to rupture. Um, so they rushed me straight to hospital, and, and this thing was out very quickly. And within, I was supposed to be there for a few days, and within 24 hours, I had discharged myself from the hospital because I had meetings I needed to go to. Uh, and, and I realized, like, I'm, I'm, this is ridiculous. You know, I'm, 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 I'm still in pain. My scars are, are in a mess. They still needed tidying up, and uh, and here I am back working. And, and I, I, that was the moment for me when I realized, you know, I'm trying to do all of this for my family, yes, but what's going to happen if I'm no longer here because I've pushed myself too far, or I end up giving myself a heart attack or something? And that was when I realized, actually, I need to focus on the bits that I'm best at, and you know, build that team around me of people who, who are just as good at their bit. Agreed. I'm with you. I'm with you, buddy. Right. So how did we get from the, the starting the business and the exit to then the investment bank and, and kind of going into that world of finance then? Were you just bitten by the bug? Well, it, it's interesting, Phil. It, it really, I, I, it, this is before I got bitten by the bug and I was working with a lot of emerging growth companies as an advisor and, and a lot of that, of course, then naturally leads to, can you help us raise money? Or can you help us go public? Or can you help us make an acquisition? And being uh, then seeing what was happening in the, the micro cap space, which is really where I spend the majority of my time, it was very hard to get the attention of a quality investment bank, and even more so a champion inside of that bank who would be a banker that would really work in the best interest of what my goals and objectives were. And after doing a lot of that work and honestly hiring and paying a lot of money to a lot of professionals and still ending up doing a lot of the work and performance on my own, mm. especially when it came to the, the specifics of raising capital, you know, and completing mergers and acquisitions, uh, I said, you know, if I'm going to do all the work and I'm going to get paying others, why not do all the work and be licensed fully and do it all right and do it on my own? So I went through the entire process of registering with the Securities Exchange Commission, uh, the regulatory body, which was then the National Securities Association dealers, and created an application to become a boutique investment bank and did that yeah. successfully. 
that in its own right was a very big accomplishment. And then I ran Absolutely. that successfully for many years. Uh, but what changed, Phil, was that I went from being what I love about building businesses to then being an administrator uh, because it's a highly regulated industry. Uh, my licenses were clean. I never had any regulatory issues, but I didn't enjoy being a regulatory administrator of a firm. I wanted to build companies. So mm. I sold it uh, so I could go back to doing what I love to do. Yeah, and I love that. And you know what? And, and we were having this conversation privately, and um, I think a lot of people will, will will recognize this in their own business, especially if they've tried to to go public or they've looked at that as an option, or even in, indeed tried to raise some some capital and some investment. Is that there always appears to be a gap, right? You'll have a bank that will say, "We can help you once you get to X," but then they just kind of say off you go. And it's like, okay, so how do I, how do I fill that gap? How do I achieve X? And without that roadmap in place, people just kind of float from one thing to the other. I mean, being good at running your business and and being good at generating leads and sales and delivering a good service or a good product does not necessarily mean that you, in fact, it doesn't mean that you know how to raise funds and capital, right? 100%, 100%, Phil. And, and, and that, that gap can exist not just in raising capital, but there are many aspects of, of being able to build a company that would be one going public and then really thriving as a sustainable public entity. So, you know, the principles of the firm, you know, that I've created, we all have extensive capital market backgrounds and track records and experience. And then it's the planning and the implementation, you know, but really what it comes down is to the execution. And so you could have a founder that has a great business and doesn't have that experience and then picks the wrong banker mm-hmm. or picks the wrong attorney uh, who doesn't really understand his business or his objectives. And then, again, you could end up spending a lot of time, and a lot of money and not realizing your stated goals and objectives. So, so that's where I basically created this platform. So, you know, we've served as founders, officers, directors of our own public and private companies. And then working with that and the investment community now with collectively about 100 years of Wall Street experience, we understand the challenges that the entrepreneurs, the corporate officers and the directors, as well as the shareholders, the the uh, the investors are going to confront. And then each one of those are unique, Phil. There's no like there's no textbook you can read uh, no. that's going to give you all that information. And, and even then, every business has its own unique characteristics. So ours mm. is a very hands-on uh, kind of roll up your sleeves like you would expect from an entrepreneur. You know, look at the issues, create a strategy and a roadmap, and then we execute in conjunction or in a partnership, you know, with those clients. Okay. So I'm going to ask you, a, you just mentioned an important word there, which is characteristics. I'm going to ask you a, a double question here. So because I'm, you, I think you've touched on both of these points. So how do you... Uh, as an organization, establish whether a, a an emerging growth company has the right characteristics to go public is the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, for those emerging companies looking into the investment community, you've just said they can quite easily pick the wrong investment banker or the wrong VC or the wrong whatever. What characteristics should they be looking for when it comes to doing their due diligence on the other side as well? Okay, so let's unpack some of that, Phil. I think we'll we'll break it up into two parts. So the first are the characteristics. You know, I've been an investor in the space as well for a long time, working with emerging growth companies. So in order to evaluate those to see if they're, well, number one, going to be good investment, and two, what it takes to go public, I think first and foremost starts with good leadership, mm-hmm. right? Leadership that can possess a track record 
that shows that they're an innovative leadership team that can produce the results of increasing revenue, uh, profit, and, and scaling the company. Uh, so, you know, additionally, we'll look at does the company possess some form of a competitive advantage? And, and not just a competitive advantage, but specifically in a market sector that's poised for high growth. You know, if you have an advantage in an industry that's on a downturn, it's very difficult to be an emerging growth company, right? And then finally, we want to see that the business model has a demonstrable traction in the marketplace. You know, some recognition and proof that there really is a business that has a pathway that can have accelerated earnings and revenue, not just short-term, meaning quarter over quarter, but year over year for the next, you know, three to five years. So those are some of the criteria we look at, you know, sticking with what I would consider the fundamentals. A lot of people want to overlook the fundamentals and get to the sizzle and the sex appeal. I, I like to have the combination of, of both. I think it makes a lot of and sense. And then regarding, yeah, the fundam- good, just good, solid thinking, Phil. Um, you know, there's there's no magic in a lot of that. It's just really being able to, to follow uh, a disciplined approach. And, and then, you know, where, where then you asked about the investment bankers and the financial community, that's very different because we, we've experienced that you can sign on investment bankers that may not be the right size and scope and scale for your business, or your industry. So we look at it kind of like a two-way street where the company wants to interview the bankers just as much as the bankers would want to interview the company. And then part of our kind of sticky glue, Phil, is that we match up. We know that we're very relevant and current in the financial community with the boutique investment banks, as well as tier three, tier two, and tier one bankers. And so who's relevant to the unique company that we're working with, the size, the sector, right? And then we look to tangere some very, or to garner some very tangible market feedback from them. So we'll do an outreach to those senior bankers at the select firms we know very well. And then we know the both the questions that they're going to put forth and the concerns from the banking community. And then we'll help to evaluate with them the various stages of engagement. You know, and then the final piece. So, you know, what's critical is being able to reach those bankers. Right. And then the final piece is negotiation uh, and making sure that not just the economic terms are good, but that the, the terms and conditions of the agreements are fair and aren't going to restrict the company in its future beyond just this first initial raise of capital. Mm, I like that. You've, you've, you've covered a lot there, so I want, to, I want to dive into some of that. But actually, it reminds me of a conversation I had about a year or so ago uh, with somebody in the investment community. And I won't say who, because that wouldn't be very fair. Um, <laughs> but they, they were talking to me about the sort of percentage that they take for different deals, and the, and the spread was huge. And I said, well, how, how can it be such a huge spread? What's the difference between the guys paying the fee at the top, like the percentage at the top, and the ones giving you the smaller percentage? And he said, one bunch told me what they were prepared to spend and uh, prepared to give, and the other didn't have a clue. And it was like, wow. wow. <laughs> okay. So uh, I'm, I'm curious then, because this is an unknown to a lot of people, right? So for the companies that dream, for example, of, of of trading on Nasdaq, of going public, how do they know when they're big enough to have that conversation with with somebody like you, and and, and what kind of money is that going to cost them to be able to do that? Yeah, we we get this quite a bit as a, as a question, Phil, and and understanding that I've spent the majority of my career around early stage growth companies, and and the range of that is pretty broad. It's everything from pre revenue 
to about a $500 million market cap. Uh, and one of the misnomers on Wall Street is that you have to have a certain size. You know, I had I was spoke, speaking to somebody yesterday. I said, well, until we hit $100 million in revenue, we can't do an IPO. So I simply said, you know, that's a misconception. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at I gave him many examples of companies that are pre-revenue. Just take biotech and med tech alone. Majority of those that are listed on NASDAQ are pre-revenue by nature. But there are smaller companies. So. One of the things I think that I'd like you know you and the listeners to understand is that there are no stated revenue requirements or earnings requirements for a really? company to list. That does surprise yeah, me. It's, it's it does right. People think they have to have a certain size and scope. Now, what they do have to have is a certain valuation that makes it attractive enough for them to reach the minimum requirements of listing. But that valuation is based on a number of different things that is separate. And distinct from their current, you know, revenue as it stands today. So that's part of one of the the myths. We like to start with companies early, and and build. But there's both quantitative and qualitative aspects of listing a company, you know. And I'm happy to go through any of those. But to answer your question, you know, the the stage of development, especially if you're in a hot sector. Like we've seen, I have examples right now. We're working with a, a company in the electronic vehicles or electric vehicle space. The EV space is super hot, right? Um, as is fintech. There's other, other, you know, certainly very hot spaces right now. Um, that company is pre-revenue, and uh, we're going to be able to do a, an initial round of capitalization and then follow that by an IPO on Nasdaq. And the, the bankers are very excited about it because it's in a super hot space, right? Yeah, I love that. And so we've been able to negotiate a valuation with that client that is beyond what he could have gotten in the private marketplace, beyond what he could have gotten in you know, venture capital um, because of those things. So there are unique characteristics. I think the takeaway is that we realize that entrepreneurs often think they're too small, too early, or don't have enough revenue. And that's yeah. just not always the case. That that I've got to be honest. That does surprise me. It really does. And and the reason I mean, that, look, I'm I'm I've looked into this to to a, a small degree, as you can imagine. But I mean, I I remember doing business and economics. I mean, this was a long time ago that I studied this. But my understanding was that the kind of New York Stock Exchange and Nasdaq, you were talking. Hundred million dollars in revenue with a plan to get to a billion, and if you didn't have that in in, in place, nobody was going to touch you. That was right. that was that was my kind of understanding. Was it's it's those financial numbers. So to hear that you're doing this stuff with with companies who are pre revenue is is just it's it's very exciting. I think, and a lot of people will be going, "Wow, maybe I'm not so small after all." And and, and that's you know what what used to be the case and still is is that companies will then start to trade publicly on a lower level exchange. And, and that's quite often, you know, you just think about it like tiers. You would have a lower yeah, yeah. tier, a mid-tier, and an upper tier. Um, you know, and, and we also work with a lot of companies that are already public. And and they went public whichever way they went for the reasons that they did. And now they're not getting all the benefits of being public. Okay. So we take the same approach there, which is then looking to upgrade them to a higher level of a senior exchange. But we have the same thinking there. We have companies that have already gone public. They say, oh, we're not ready. We're too small uh, or we're too this or we're too that. And then we work with them. And this is, I think, Bill, part of what excites me about what we do. We work with them then to say, okay, if there are deficiencies, if you don't reach certain criteria, let's create a plan to solve those. Mm -hmm. 
let's bring up your shareholder equity through a capital raise. Let's you know bring together qualitative aspects, which are really the capital structure of the company, or quantitative to make sure. But some of those things take time. You know, that's why the answer is it's really never too early to start if you're committed. So what we're looking for is someone who has a commitment and understands the benefits of moving to a senior exchange, whether you're already public or if you're private. Mm, I like that. Look, you touched on some of the myths. What, the, I imagine there's more. What are the myths that you come across most often that people have about this space? Well, that's probably you know one of the biggest ones. The the other is is a little bit of the entrepreneurial plague that you and I were discussing earlier. They mm. think they can do it on their own, right? And and then they realize that wow, or or they have other people. Listen, we're this is a very complex process. I like to try to make it simple, Phil, because I think business in general can be you know uh, made more difficult and and with more smoke and mirrors than it needs be. Um, but it does require specific knowledge. And, and with that, I've developed this knowledge with my team and experience. And there are other ones that have that. There are bankers that have it or lawyers that have it uh, or, you know, consultants. But what we do is we bring a focus that this is exactly our niche and our lane. And so we bring all of that into kind of a one-stop solution. And that's what makes us a bit unique in this space. So while, while there's a myth that somebody believes they can do it on their own or their lawyer can do it, or their accountant or their auditor can do it, they could, uh, but you you know then find that it takes you away from your day-to-day business. Mm-hmm. We like to think about, let the CEO and management focus on the operational side of this business, and then we partner with them on all of the other aspects. And I'm, trust me, Phil, it's extremely complicated, and mm-hmm. the attention to detail and all of what I would call the moving parts or variables mm-hmm. are a full-time plus you know situation. Okay, and it's listen, very hard I can... to run a business. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, I can understand that even from my perspective. I mean, we get involved in such a small part of what businesses do. But I mean, even – I mean, th- that's why we work so well with the investment community, right? Because they've invested in a business that they can see tremendous potential in. But if not enough people know that that business exists or they're not speaking to the right customers, it doesn't matter how great your product or service is. If people don't know you exist, like, nobody wants to be the best-kept secret in their industry, right? That's a, that's a, that's a misconception. So – but it's it's incredible how many people you come across, and this isn't a criticism of them either, but it's incredible how many people you come across who are really good at what they do, but they're trying to desperately figure out all this other stuff themselves, and they're overcomplicating it most of the time, or they 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 uh, have misjudged what it is they need to be doing and where it is they need to be putting their attention, which is why having that strategic roadmap, no matter what it is you're trying to do, whether you're trying to go public, you're raising investment, whether you're trying to fix your leadership issues, whether you're trying to recruit more people, whether you're trying to market yourself, it's better to have a strategy from somebody who's been there, done that, and knows how to do it than for you to take yourself away from the thing you're supposed to be doing and try and figure this stuff out for yourself. Agreed. You know, very, very well said. And so, you know, in our in our view of that, you know, we stay in our our lane here, which is, you know, very specialized. But then not just we design the plan, we execute it and Mm. and we execute it in a partnership where we're not hired guns. Right. So, you know, even if you had a roadmap and a strategy, then you have to have the people to help execute it. And, and, And you could bring on all those paid individuals we like to earn, uh, um, because I'm an entrepreneur, Phil, I like to earn, uh, you know, my, my compensation by performance. And so I'm part merchant bank in the sense that we take equity positions 
Uh, we take some some you know some fees, kind of just you know lower to keep the the cost of covering our overhead. But the majority of our money is made. The overwhelming amount of it is made through performance and reaching certain milestones in equity. And then we're also aligned with the entrepreneur. We're aligned with the shareholders. We're aligned with the board because our goal and our increase in value is the same as theirs. It's creating a, a, a much higher valuation for the equity and being able to have a way of liquidating and monetizing that equity over time. I can see, based on your experience, I can see why this this fits for you and why it works. But I'm curious, from an investment perspective then, is there as much appetite to get involved in these early stage growth companies as there is for a company who, I mean, we were using that number before, but let's say they've already got a certain amount of turnover. They've already got a certain amount that they're producing. Is there as much appetite for you know, these early stage businesses, maybe even, and it, you get what I'm saying, maybe, you know, they're, they're pre-profit, it's a brand new business, they're, they're, they're fresh out the traps, you know, is there still a good market out there of people who are interested to kind of get involved quite early, the whole risk and reward thing? Um, or, or do you typically find that there's a percentage, a, a portion of that investment market that only want to get involved when people have gone above a certain stage? Yeah, of course, Phil. You know, with with risk comes reward, right? So, you know, in in a a well diversified portfolio, you would have high risk, you know, mid risk and low risk investments in your portfolio. Uh, certainly, you know, a blended portfolio where where you've got that mix makes the most sense. Where emerging companies clearly are going to be, you know, higher risk. They also provide higher return, you know, and all of these companies that we now talk about that are like household names, you know, think of Amazon, think of Google, they all had to start somewhere, right? Exactly. So, you know, and, and had any of us invested way back when, uh, you know, we might be having some different conversations here at the moment, but, you know, the, the truth is that, that there's a variety of investors that are different and separate at stages. So, you know, this is not really traditional venture capital, uh, and it's not traditional angel investing. There is different ways of accessing capital. And what we found is that there is a very strong demand for companies that are early stage growth companies that can show this kind of growth up into, you know, reaching a significant amount of liquidity and volume and that com investors in these companies want liquidity. So they're not investing in a private company, hoping one day there'll be a liquidity event. Mm -hmm. And then how do you ever get your money out? This is what, what changes the mix here, Phil, is that these investors know that there's a liquidity event pending, mm. forthcoming. And, and not to mean that every one of them is going to give you know, a, a 10x return or, or higher, but that there is an opportunity to get their money off the table should they want. And then investing is very specific to the valuation, uh, the structure, the terms, uh, how it's all put together. And those are places also where we take great interest in helping the companies to realize how to structure good valuations, and good, actually, economic returns for both the investors as well as for the companies. I like this. This is exciting. I can see why you love what you do. Well, Seriously. it's fun, and, and we get to yeah, work with like these great entrepreneurs. You know, the entrepreneurs are what – that's what lights me up, Phil, right? Like to get to work with guys that really are passionate, and they're experts at what they do. They could have been in their sector for 10 years or 20 years, and they've, they've got their PhDs in their sector and, and things that I could never learn, you know, in a lifetime right now, given my age. And, and so we get to leverage that with our experience, and we're working with people all over the world. 
You know, we just took on a new client out of Malaysia that's in the fintech sector. Uh, they've taught me more about what's happening in Southeast Asia. As you know, Phil, is a very hot area, not just industry-wise, but geographically, you know, for fintech. You know, with Singapore coming on and whole Southeast Asia. Uh, and, and so we get to kind of be, you know, like uh, parachuted right into the middle of all that uh, and working with these dynamic entrepreneurs. And it's, uh, it's, it's fun. It's refreshing. It's stimulating. Uh, and don't get me wrong. There's a lot of hard work. Uh, I have a great work ethic. I love to work hard. But it's mm. easier, Phil, when you're stimulated. You know this. Yeah, by I what know you it. do. When, you, when you're turned on, it's like, yeah, okay. Uh, yes, it's work. But we really, you know, we like to mix in a little fun and, and, and yet produce the results at the same time. You're energized by it. I can fully relate to that. So, you know, I, I have a saying I use all the time, which is I love what we do and I love who I do it for. Um, and, and that's that's why we, we're selective over who we work with, because I want to be as just as excited about what it is that you're doing as you are. Otherwise, you don't want to work with me and I don't want to work with you if that's not the case. If it's just a job, if I'm just going through the process, going through the motions, it's not the same as me being excited and, and wanting to kind of drive you. But actually, you just touched on an interesting point there. So uh, I do a lot of work across Southeast Asia. I love the emerging markets as well, you know. Um, but is there a geographical criteria related to these exchanges then? I mean, is that, you know, we're talking about these fintech banks in Singapore and Malaysia, for example. Is that going to cause them a problem when trying to access NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange? What does that situation look like? Yeah, so first off, uh, there there are no geographic limitations. Um, you know, I, I have my, my master's in international business, and it's a, it's a passion area for me, Phil. It's just I love, you know, new cultures and people and the differences of, of being able to do business around the world. And so specifically, that's one of my real strong interests in, in the platform that we've built. You know, right now, as I mentioned, we have a fintech company in Malaysia. I have a pharmaceutical distribution company in Europe. We're working with a med tech company in Israel. Uh, I got a telecom company out of, out of um, you know, Canada. So there really are not any geographic limitations. What there are are then different listing requirements. And, and you can list as a foreign company. Uh, as a foreign issuer, and then there's different criteria that those companies have to meet from a financial reporting and other metrics, uh, but it's 100% doable. Uh, so those companies can maintain domicile in wherever they are in the world. In this case, you know, I'll use the Malaysian entity, but mm. we've decided to set up a U.S. holding company so then they can get the benefit of the best of both worlds. Love it. So they maintain their operations there. And then we have the flexibility to list them as a foreign issuer, or if we domicile them in the U.S., then they become a U.S. holding company with offshore operations. So there is many different ways to reach that goal, um, and that's unique to everyone. There's tax implications. You know, there's structures that get very complex that are beyond kind of my pay grade. But really, when the day is done, this is a, a global platform. And what's great for the companies that are, are located outside of North America is the credibility that they get, Phil, you know, to have the company listed on NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange uh, gives them tremendous credibility, right? And the transparency, right? Access to institutional investment, uh, you know, the ability to really have, you know, research coverage and, and, and analyst support, uh, things that they would have maybe access to if they were on a platform trading, you know, in their own country, uh, but certainly maybe I'm a little biased because I took my own company to NASDAQ. But I believe <laughs> that, you know, in the U.S., capital markets are always going to be having you know the highest regard and access to institutional funds and support and transparency. I agree. 
Look, we've flown through this, so um, we, we're almost out of time. Which is, I mean, we could go full Joe Rogan on this. We really could. But before we kind of, uh, maybe we should do that at some point. You know, we'll we'll grab a beer and we'll just do like a three-hour show. But before before we move on to how people can get in touch with you and all that kind of stuff, I think there's a big question I really should ask, and, and I want to ask this for all of our listeners who are who are listening to this. Okay, how do you know when the right time to initiate this listings process is? Then, so people are now listening to this, and and, and I I can speak for them almost in this they're now they've learned a lot from you you've you know got rid of a lot of the myths that they held to be true you've just opened the whole world of possibilities to them and now they're going okay so how do i know when it's the right time i think it starts with knowing that there's a commitment phil there, there really is no like uh, linear stated hey here's a certain marker you want to hit before you're ready to have this conversation uh, so, and, and as part of that, you know, if there's a commitment, uh, what, 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 what I like to do, and then we will, you know, kind of offer something unique to, to your listeners is work backwards. So if NASDAQ is where you want to end up, let's then work backwards to where you are today. And then we reverse engineer a, a pathway. It's no different than, you know, you're setting out a course to go to, you know, to South Africa again. And we say, okay, how are you going to get there? Well, we got to chart a course and then fill in each step along the way. And so that reverse engineering is actually really what we do. And then we'll create a, a timeline uh, and a set of deliverables and milestones along the way. Uh, so specific to, you know, billionaires and boxer listeners, you know, what I want to be able to offer are two things. One, I'm really happy to do a complimentary discovery call. Uh, and, and that's just to have a discussion, you know, albeit brief about, you know, the company and the goals and objectives. Uh, and then separately, I also want to offer that we'll do a free analysis uh, for the companies that are already committed and considering a listing. And so, you know, the best way to do this is to connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, I want, you know, people to message with billionaires and boxers real clearly in LinkedIn uh, so that, you know, with that message that I know that you're coming through the show and that we'll be able to give you the offer that we wouldn't otherwise be able to to facilitate. So the best way is on LinkedIn. Uh, or, you know, of course, you can email me at peter at exchangelistingllc.com or go to our website at exchangelistingllc.com. But, you know, would be happy to entertain any of those things with your listeners. Well, that's a very generous offer. Thank you. And I, and I, and I really hope that people take you up on that because that's, uh, that's one hell of an offer. And I will certainly put the links in the show notes below. So for those of you who are, are buzzing with this right now going, yes, 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 this is what I want to do. Click on the show notes below. You'll see Peter's details there. Drop him a connection request on LinkedIn. And as it says, add note in that section, stick in there, billionaires in boxes or BIB, if you can't spell billionaires. And and, uh, we'll get you there. Don't worry. And um, and then yeah, send that message across, Peter. I, I can't thank you enough for this. I mean, there's a, I can tell there's there's a reason that you and I work so well together. We uh, very different markets, but but very d- similar approach when it comes to things. I love reverse engineering things. You know, I often I often say to people that when you start taking action, particularly when it comes to marketing and things, marketing and publicity, if you're taking action without that destination in mind, you're just doing it for vanity metrics. Um, it, it has to be with a roadmap, right? It's like sitting in the car with your sat-nav there and not pumping in an address and wondering why you've not got there. Um, it, it start with that end in mind, start with the goal and, and build that roadmap accordingly. And, and I'm sure that there'll be many, many people that, that kind of want to have that conversation with you and, and see where it takes them. I'm curious, actually. So whilst this is open to our listeners, 
what kind of sectors would you really like to hear from? What kind of people and locations do you think, ooh, that's hot, I want to get involved in that? Well, anything tech, you know, with, with tech, you know, pre or post, you know, fintech, martech, you know, medtech uh, is, is certainly hot. Um, I have some really other interests in, in other areas. You know, EV space is hot. Uh, we happen to have a, a life science orientation with with our team. Um, I, I, I'm I'm really looking at right now. I'm, I'm oriented, and we haven't talked much about it, but I'm building a a very special purpose public company in the psychedelic medicine space. Love uh, I love social responsibility. I like that space because it has an opportunity to give back to mankind. Uh, I love circular economy companies, you know, renewable energy. Probably the thing that would light me up the most is something that has a social responsibility aspect to it, where I know that, you know, not only are we profiting, but we're also doing well for the world. And, and you know, those would be the things that we'd be happy to discuss with anybody. But I don't want to limit – I don't want to put any limits on it because, no, sure. you know, really there are none. There, it's a wide open playing field, Phil. Well, it's about the person, isn't it? It's pe- people res- you you work with those you resonate with, and if somebody's got a got something hot, got something competitive, got something that they're doing well with the right leadership team in place and the right people surrounding them, then that's that's where it gets exciting because you start to look at that as a collective and as a team and go, yeah, we can do special things with this group. Agreed. So to the to the listeners, you know why wait? Uh, let's go. The market's waiting for you, and you know great opportunities you know lie ahead. So Phil, your pleasure. It, it really is uh, just absolutely you know uh, really enjoyable and 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 fun and 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 very valuable for for me and I'm sure hopefully for the others listening. Uh, and I look forward to the next time we can you know revisit this. Certainly do. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. To our listeners, please do go and take that action. Uh, there's one thing that I've learned from this, from Peter, during this conversation. It's that uh, now is the right time to be having that conversation. Let's reverse engineer it and design that roadmap for you. So if you've got those growth plans, if you're excited to take your business to its truest potential, definitely be having those conversations. Check out the show notes. Uh, and until next time, take care of yourselves and we'll see you then. This is Billionaires in Boxes, an award-winning podcast and TV publicist for businesses. 